0: So, if you will please turn with me to Mark 6, 7 through 32. That's Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 32. This is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God in his word this morning. And as you're turning there, I wonder who do you depend on? Who have you? Uh, gone to in your life, when all the chips are down, when you think of the, in the past, who is the person you could always turn to? Well, thankfully, uh, I had wonderful parents, both of whom I could really go to about anything, and, and maybe in honor of Father's Day, I, I, I think of this, but I could always go to my dad for just about anything. And perhaps one funnier example uh, situation that comes to mind actually occurred when I was older and already out of the house. Um, I was visiting my parents and I was over there pretty late. They had gone to bed and it was late when I was leaving and I'm backing down the my parents' oddly shaped driveway in the dark and I hit something. I knew immediately what I had hit. See, my, my parents have this water spigot right next to their driveway, which is Hard enough to avoid already during the day because of the way their driveway shaped. But at night, I could not see it at all, backed into it. And I actually broke, the, the, I broke where it connected down to the supply line underground. So you can imagine water is bubbling up out of the ground. And here it is in the middle of the night. And my parents are already asleep. And so I'm like, what do I do? I'm trying to fix it myself. But eventually, nothing's happened. I can't do anything. To no avail. And so I go and wake up my dad in the middle of the night, and sure enough, he came and helped me. I don't even remember what we did to kind of put a band-aid on this thing for, for a minute, but we got it figured out. And the reality of, of this situation is my dad was always there for me to depend on, but my, my sense of needing him was heightened in this moment of, of uncertainty, Right? And, and this is what, what Mark has been showing us, and he's going to remind us even more of this today, that, that we know we are always utterly dependent upon God. But, some seasons in life, God makes us even more aware, as uncertainties and circumstances abound, just how much we need Him. We find ourselves wondering, what's going on? to happen next in my life? What, what's going to happen with my family? What's going to happen with our church? We as elders were praying just together last week about considering some of these very realities in, in our prayers. We find ourselves, even as a body, in a, in a season of this heightened awareness, right, of our utter dependence upon God, transition of leadership, and God has been so kind to us in that. We're seeking to discern a new vision. What does it look like to be DGCC? Uh, The vision team, we're we're praying together and seeking, what does it look like to be DGCC in the near and far future? We're looking at the details and specifics, and we're we're wondering, how will we be DGCC in the near and far future? How will God provide? How will will he meet us in, in very real needs? God's word is, is truly living and active because in his kindness, I think he has been, he's been setting us up for this season here in Mark. We've, because we've just seen in Mark how Jesus is greater and stronger than anything we will face. And now in the next few narratives, we're going to see God's promise of provision in the midst of life's uncertainties come to the forefront. We often find that in the midst of uncertainty, God desires to show us more than we even expect or anticipate. We often, in our lives, are after the quick fixes, and God is after the eternal changes. Therefore, God uses what we've, as we've seen in Mark, times of uncertainty, times of unknown, to move us to greater faith in him. Our passage today and indeed in the next several narratives are going to to reveal to all of us that our true source of dependence always lies with God, with the Son, Jesus. And so we will lean into this theme for the next several weeks in our sermons in Mark and elsewhere as as the Spirit leads us. And and let's remind ourselves what we have seen. Mark is answering the question in his book, who, who Jesus is. Who is he? And, and Mark tells us Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and we should follow him. He's all about showing who Jesus is and asking the question, will you follow? More recently, we saw Jesus in all his greatness and mighty acts of power and authority be rejected by his own people, his hometown of Nazareth, the people who knew him best. They missed how desperately he They needed Jesus. They missed Jesus himself. Up to this point, Jesus has been front and center, and the disciples have not so much. Really, the most interaction we've seen recently is when Jesus calmed the storm, and, and even there, it gets to the very heart of Mark's question, because at the end of that scene, what were the disciples asking? Who then is this? Here in our passage this morning, Mark is going to take those disciples and their weak faith and hardened hearts and put them under the microscope. Therefore, he's putting us under the microscope, those of us who are with Jesus, insiders of the kingdom. And we're going to see that these bumbling disciples make a somewhat miraculous transformation in the face of uncertainty. And Mark aims to show us that in all the uncertainty of life, Jesus' disciples, insiders of the kingdom, will look like him. Indeed, in these very uncertainties, Jesus is using them to make the disciples look like him, even in the face, as we will see, of great cost. And not only does Jesus meet us in the uncertainty to provide for our needs, but he shows himself to be more beautiful and moves us to greater faith. So look with me now at Mark 6, verses 7 through 32, a big passage of Scripture, a big chunk here, but you might not be surprised to learn that Mark has given us another one of his sandwiches. That is, Mark begins the narrative, sending out the 12, and he interrupts that narrative with this detailed, lengthy story of John the Baptist's execution, and then he ends the narrative with the disciples return. And he wants us to see how these seemingly unrelated stories mutually interpret one another, the interplay. We've seen this before. We're used to it by now. So we'll consider this passage in three parts. We will first consider the disciples in life, verses 7 through 13. Second, we will consider verses 14 through 29, the disciples in death. And third, in verses 30 through 32, we will see disciples in rest. And the main idea is Jesus' disciples look like Jesus. So look with me now at at, uh, verses 7 through 13. And as we we turn there, I want you just to consider uh, what we've seen so far. Jesus has just been rejected at Nazareth, and now he is taking his disciples and calling them to himself to send them out. Now, this is a, uh, a fulfillment of what we've seen in, in Mark 3. Remember, Jesus called the twelve there up to the mountain in order to what? That they would be with him and that he could send them out. And that was in response to one of the biggest crowds we have seen come to Jesus in all their affliction and all their suffering from all the regions, Jew and Gentile, coming to Jesus. And we said, that's the plight of the world. This is a desperate world that needs Jesus. And Jesus's response was to call the 12 to be with him and send them out in order to proclaim the gospel. And here we read that he sent them out with the authority to over unclean spirits. But it, we know that's not the limit of what their, their mission was because when we look at verse 12, we see that they went out and proclaimed peop- to people to repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil. So, so bound up within this, with this authority is the authority to proclaim this message. And and Mark frames this whole portion as instructions, as commands. Jesus charges them in verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And whenever... uh, And Mark... and, And so... They're to take nothing, walking sticks, sandals, presumably the clothes on their back. No money, no extra clothes, and they are to be couch surfers of sorts. Jesus instructs them to stay in a house that welcomes them. Now this is, in the cultural context, this was a, hospitality was highly prized, and this was a social norm, offering fellow Jewish uh, travelers accommodations in your home and provision. But why the instructions to, to stay only with those who welcomed you until you depart? Well, one commentator notes that for travelers it was common to move up the social ladder, to, to, to accept better and better accommodations. Well, this is, is not what the disciples are to, told to do, and this fits with the gospel, doesn't it? They're not to be respecters of persons. They're not out seeking their own comfort in this context. The mission is to take the gospel, and the idea behind the welcome here in Mark, this idea behind those who welcome, it's always associated in Mark with receiving Jesus in the kingdom. Whoever receives, welcomes one such child in my name, welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me, welcomes not me, but him who sent me. It's Mark 9, 37. So Jesus anticipates that his disciples and their message of the kingdom will be accepted. But he also weaves in the reality of uncertainty by anticipating that they will not always be accepted. Look at verse 11. And if in any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This should not be surprising. Jesus himself, we saw, was rejected in Nazareth, and he he did this very thing. He took the message elsewhere. So, this certainty of possible rejection makes for uncertainty in their travels. Will the next person, will the next town, will the next city accept me and the gospel message? Will my very real needs of, of provision, food, and shelter be met? In the midst of this uncertainty... Jesus charges the disciples to go in divine dependence. They must trust the command of their Lord and they must depend on God to provide for their very real needs through others. So in sum, what we see here is that these disciples will look like Jesus for two reasons. They will wield divine authority And this authority, this idea of authority, is only something that Jesus has had the entire way through Mark thus far. And now these disciples will look like Jesus because they will wield divine authority. And secondly, they will look like Jesus because they will walk in divine dependence. Well, What about us? How are we to understand this for us right now? Do we need to go out and grab a walking stick and start, and start hoofing it over to Davidson? Well, many times in Scripture we, have, we know these things that are prescriptive for us that we should do and descriptive, a lot of times in narratives describing what happened in a specific context, not necessarily specifically what we should do. But here I actually think we have a little bit of both. We obviously have some very specific commands, some very specific details, in a very specific context that fits, as we noted, the Jewish culture. It was expected to take those into your home and provide for them. Our travel looks a little different nowadays. So how do we, how do we apply this? How do we emulate this? Should we walk around only in sandals with a walking stick, not taking anything with us, try to stay at random people's houses, Well, I won't completely write this off as an impossibility. There very much might be a context in which a Christian could and should do these things. However, we cannot miss the forest for the trees here. What is Jesus calling his disciples to do? We should recognize three things. We should recognize that in this, it identifies those who follow Jesus as pilgrims. You are a pilgrim. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. The Christian should never grow too attached to the things of the world. Indeed, the only accepted attire, the official uniform of the Christian, is the clothes you are wearing, the shoes on your feet, and the clothes and the walking stick in your hand. Because you are my friend, are simply passing through this world. First Peter 2 makes very clear, we are sojourners and exiles. Therefore, we don't, we don't invest in the, the passions of the flesh and the things of the world. Our affections are set elsewhere. We are looking to a, a, a heavenly city whose foundations and the builder of whom is God. Mount Zion, the holy Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And as you make your pilgrimage there, you carry the message of that city as an ambassador, the gospel. And we reject the world. We don't put our hope in the world. We put our hope there. This is a cost of discipleship in this life. We don't value the things that the world says we need to value. The outside looking in would think that this life that looks to a future heavenly city is, is wasted. But this is, this is the reality of the Christian life. We are pilgrims passing through with the gospel. The cost of discipleship in life not putting our hope in comforts of the world. Secondly, you willed divine authority to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So this passage points to and anticipates the Great Commission. There, the risen Jesus commissions his disciples. And what does he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. What the disciples experience here, in part, the divine authority of Christ working through them, that is what we live in. The Holy Spirit has been poured out to us, within us. You wield divine authority. Now, will this authority necessarily look like casting out demons and healing the sick? It absolutely will for some people in some places. And I pray that it happens more and more. But for all Christians, in all contexts, this authority will be nothing short of proclaiming the gospel. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' disciples, even today, will look like Jesus in this respect. They will preach the kingdom with the same authority. Because we do it with his very spirit. Thus, when people see you, listen to you, receive the message you're preaching, they are seeing and listening to and receiving Christ. Thus, Jesus' fame is perpetuated, not the Christian, not Daniel, not Mike, not Kaylee, not I, John. It's Jesus. Third, not only are you a pilgrim, not only do you wield divine authority, but you walk in divine dependence on God. Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, walked in perfect dependence on the Father so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And we've seen Jesus several times in Mark go off by himself to pray. So as Christians, we we are pilgrims who pass through this world on our way to God in the eternal city, and along the way we wield divine authority to proclaim the gospel and push back the forces of darkness. And the only thing that is certain in our mission, though, is that there will be uncertainty. All of our provision in life comes from God. We ultimately do not have control over our circumstances. We feel this now, don't we? A dam breaks in halfway across the world because of a war and the price of grain and corn goes up in North Carolina. We can't control how this world is going to operate. We cannot control our circumstances. But we trust in God's provision for our spiritual needs. He opens his hand and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. We trust in God's provision for our physical needs. So in the same way, when it comes to our gospel mission, There is always uncertainty. Some people will accept. Some people will reject. We do not know. Some people will persecute. But we do know that God's word will not return empty. His kingdom is inevitable. And it's only in the recognition of our great dependence on Jesus that great work for the kingdom is done. And so, here we see in this passage, the disciples go out and proclaimed, that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They obeyed from this disposition and they ended up looking like Jesus. And we might think, whoa, these disciples up to this point have only displayed unbelief, hard heartedness, and, and just sometimes just ignorance, right? Yet here, they look exactly like Jesus. How? Because Jesus makes them look like him. It was Jesus who gave them this authority. It is Jesus who works through them so that even in their work, it's not their names. It's not James and John and Peter. It's not their names who are recognized. It's Jesus' name. And this is the same for us. God works through us as imperfect vessels, and his name and his fame grows. The mission and vision of DGCC depends completely upon Jesus. We can plan, we can seek to form a vision, but if, if we do not grow in faith and recognize our dependence upon God in the midst of uncertainty, then our efforts are for nothing. And thankfully, our king is a a good king, and when he calls us to walk in dependence upon him, even in uncertainty and certain rejection, in that process, he makes us look like him. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We look like Jesus in the midst of uncertainty because we will define authority and walk in divine dependence no matter the cost because he has made us to do that. This is our identity. So, we see here the disciples doing what Jesus did in the face of uncertainty, and now we're interrupted by John's execution narrative, and we wonder, what is Mark doing here? Mark aims to highlight that in life, Disciples will follow Jesus and do what he does in the face of uncertainty and, and great cost. And here we see that that ultimate cost for a discipleship for John was death. So let's look at disciple, a disciple in death in verses 14 through 29 as we look at John the Baptist's execution. Given all the detail here, I I think it might serve us best to work through this, not necessarily verse by verse, but by reflecting on the passage in three big chunks and, and drawing some important highlights out of those and then rounding out with some concluding thoughts. So look at verses 14 through 16. Here we see, taking into mind what we've just seen, the disciples doing what Jesus did, now we see a a king of Israel hearing about it. And who has he heard about? Not Peter, not James, not John. He hears about Jesus. It's because Jesus has replicated himself through his disciples. This is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who who sought to kill Jesus when he was a baby here, and and he hears of of the work that is going on, and, and the question again comes to the surface, who is Jesus? And people are saying all sorts of things. People are coming to conclusions that it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, this isn't resurrection as we think of resurrected life. This is rooted in superstition. This is John the Baptist's ghost. That's how he's able to do these things. Some say Elijah, the miracle working prophet of the Old Testament, perhaps another one of the prophets. Herod seems to conclude that it 's John, and it 's connected to the fact that he beheaded him. So let's take a few highlights from from these verses first. consider this: jesus 's disciples spread jesus 's fame by looking like him. Even though the disciples are the ones doing the kingdom work, it is Jesus' name that becomes known. This is who Herod hears about, Jesus. Second highlight, the false king cannot recognize the true king. Here we have a sitting king in Israel, and he does not recognize the true king, the son of David, the promised Messiah. And we must ask why. Third highlight, Sin blinds eyes to the true king. King Herod's reason for thinking that Jesus is actually the ghost of John the Baptist is rooted in his wrong, sinful execution of John the Baptist. And Mark will unpack the nature of that sin here. So I want to do a couple of things with this portion of our text. First, I want to suggest that in this very real historical event with very real people, We have an analogy for sin in our lives. So we'll dive into that part, and then we'll step back and consider how Mark is fitting this into the whole narrative. But first consider the analogy. John the Baptist represents the gospel. Indeed, this is who he was, a prophet who ushered in the coming Christ. Is there a better representative besides Jesus himself, forerunner of the king? King Herod and Herodias, Well, they would represent sinful man, us. Hard-hearted, sitting on the throne of our own hearts after our own sinful desires and vain ambitions. This is what's happening here. Sin will grow and grow from desire and produce death. Consider. Verses 17 through 20, the desire gives birth to sin. Here we see how John ended up imprisoned in the first place. Herod arrested John for the sake of Herodias, his unlawful wife. You see, Herodias was married to Herod. Now we're getting into the, the drama of it, right, of this f- f- weird family mix-up. Her- Herod is, is married to Herodias, who was his brother's wife. However, sinful desire between Herod and Herodias led Herodias to divorce Philip and marry Herod. This is an unlawful marriage and uh, unlawful divorce and remarriage by any standard of the interpretation of the law. And it's a clear indictment on the character and ungodliness of a present king in Israel. And John had apparently been publicly rebuking Herod for this. Is this the only thing, though, that That John is arrested for just because he said this? I don't think so, because Luke 3 18 through 20 tells us this about John's ministry and his arrest. So, with many other exhortations, John preached the good news to people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked him up in prison. So, apparently, John is rebuking Herod not only for Herodias, but he's rebuking Herod for all the evil things he has done. This just might be the straw that broke the camel's back. But notice the context of this rebuke as well. It's in the context of gospel proclamation, the call to repent. This call that John is sending out to everybody is landing on Herod as well. But Herod's wicked desires blind him to the call to repentance, and, he, and it gives birth to further sin. He arrests the forerunner of Christ. He adds evil to his sin. And even while he's arrested, Herodias continues to be embittered and wants to kill him. But Herod keeps him safe. Why? Because Herod knew he was a righteous and holy man. So we get some of the internal conflict here a little bit. Herod knows he is a righteous and holy man, and he is searing his conscience for the sake of his sinful desire. This is us. We will know the truth, and sinful desire will lead us to go against that very truth and sear our conscience. Do not harden your hearts to the call to repentance. It only leads to greater sin, as we will see here. So we also see the extent of Herod's blindness in that he continues to listen to John gladly. He goes and listens to him, but he is only perplexed and confounded by the gospel message. Rather than being a source of of repentance and forgiveness, good news, it brings judgment upon him because he is embracing his sin. And so the highlight here, if you haven't guessed it, is sinful desire gives birth to sin in the heart of King Herod and Herodias, and it blinds to the, to the gospel. And this is the way sin works. Desire gives birth to sin, and it blinds us to the king, the true king. And ultimately, this sinful desire and this sin will grow into death. So look with me at verses 21 through 29, where we see that sin gives birth to death. Here we see that sinful desires that started out as just desires and greater sins come together and make a cocktail of death. Herod throws a birthday party for himself, pomp and circumstance. I'm sure this is normal in royalty to throw a banquet to celebrate yourself, but just step back and think about that for a moment. Herod is celebrating himself. We already have a a context of sinfulness and vanity And and Herod invites all the elite people of the kingdom. He invites the VIPs of sorts, commanders of the army, noblemen, leaders of the people, to show off his power and to earn their favor. Herod's niece, who is now his stepdaughter, Herodias' daughter by Herod's brother Philip, dances for Herod and his guests. Now, there's different ways this has been interpreted. We don't know if this is... For sure, there's different takes on it. Is this a young woman doing an unwholesome dance and, and we see that it pleased all who were present? Or is this a young girl who is is just doing an innocent performance of sorts, like that you might see a, uh, 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 a young girl performing her dance routine from ballet or something? Either way, the, the heart of the matter here is the corruption of innocence. The corruption of innocence. And, and might I suggest to you that it could be a young girl, surprisingly enough, doing an innocent performance, because Mark uses the same word, little girl, that he used to describe Jairus' daughter. So maybe no older than 12 and so, so the, 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 this makes for a glaring indictment on both Herod and Herodias. They end up objectifying this little girl and putting them into their scheme of sinfulness. For Herod, he uses the child to, to, to show off his power and authority. He says, anything you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And, and this isn't literal. It's just to, to say, hey, I'm the king. I can do this. And it wouldn't have been taken literally either. But Herod's foolishness sets him up for a great consequence. Seeking to earn the favor of those in front of him, seeking to flex his power, the little girl runs to her mother, who immediately employs her daughter into her own evil devices by telling her, I want the head of John the Baptist. So the girl runs back with haste And here, this this word haste, it means eagerness, excitement. This is a, a young, innocent girl just wanting to do what her mom says. She's excited to come do this, not knowing the gravity of her errand. She is caught up in the sin of Herod and Herodias. Sin and the hardness of your heart will make you objectify and use people to your own ends evil ends in ways that you never thought capable. We see the corruption of innocence from this sin. The request seems to level Herod. He he, uh, is all of a sudden very upset because he knows that because of his foolish oath, now he has a choice. He will either have to go against his conscience, fearing that, that John is a righteous and holy man, and kill him, or he has to humble himself in front of all these men and all these people for his display, foolish display of power and, and let John live and break the oath to the girl. And he can't do it. He goes with the former. Sin leads to greater sin. And so, John, the great forerunner of the faith, seems to be caught up in this meaningless swirl of sin and vanity and pride and politics and dies what almost looks like a meaningless death. Well, what's the highlight here? Unrepentant sin leads to greater sin and sin against others, and it ultimately leads to death. So if the analogy is this, desire leads to sin, it grows and grows and grows, and ultimately, death is the end result. But let's step back from the analogy and see what Mark is doing. Mark goes into such detail regarding John's death and sandwiches it in between these scenes for this reason. Verse 29, when his disciples, John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. This phrase, laid it in a tomb, we see it later uh, for Jesus' body being laid in a tomb. John looks like Jesus in his death. Let's not shortchange his death here. All the details of sin, all the politics, petty grudges, abuses of innocence, and the whim are not meant to make John's death look meaningless. Rather, it's to highlight the foolishness of the world and sin in contrast to the greatness of the gospel. This was their chance for salvation, and they killed him. So the primary reason Mark includes this detailed passage here is to illustrate that Jesus' disciples, those who bear the message of the gospel, they will look like Jesus in life and in death. Looking like Jesus comes with a great cost. Jesus' disciples will go out and do what he did in life, verse 7 through 13, denying the world in the face of uncertainty. And, as verses 14 through 29 show us, sometimes that uncertainty, sometimes that cost will be death. Death. Jesus' disciples will deny their lives, but they will gain eternal life for the sake of the gospel, because what Mark is ultimately showing is that to wear this Christ-like bearing in your gate through life and to be faithful to the gospel in Christ, even in death, is not meaningless at all. It is full of meaning. Death in Christ is actually life and rest. So if you're a Christian today, you share a divine pedigree with these disciples and John the Baptist. You announce the kingdom with divine authority and divine dependence upon God. You proclaim the Messiah. More than that, you have been shaped and molded and you are being shaped and molded even now by the king himself, to look like him. For you to live is Christ. And even if the cost of that discipleship, even if the cost of following him means death, your death is gain. Look at verses 30 through 32. See what Mark is doing here. John's death was not in vain. John's death Meant great gain for him. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So we see these two different stories come come together here. Jesus' disciples do what they, they, that Jesus did in life. They look like him. And for the joy set before them, they endure the suffering, and they, they are faithful even unto death. And they look like Jesus in death. And Jesus gives rest. The disciples return from their mission, mission and they're telling Jesus what he did, and his impulse is to say, come away rest with me this is what awaits you after all your Christ-like labor labor to take this gospel and spread it near and far to neighbor and to the nations to face the enemies of the world Satan sin of others persecution even your own sin that you fight daily And death itself. All manner of rejection, all manner of uncertainty that awaits us in this life will not be meaningless because, in the end, we will have divine rest with our King. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Your deeds are the deeds of Christ who works through you and empowers you to look like him. So look like Christ in life and cling to him in the face of death. And in the end, we will see him face to face, and we will rest. So would you pray with me? Father, there's so much uncertainty in our life, and you call the Christian not to, you call us not to look just to, Two steps ahead of us without seeing the full picture. We are headed to eternal rest in you. And that hope, that promise is encouragement for us even right now. No matter what we're facing in our life, with our own struggles, the promise is this that you will complete the good work that you started in us. You will empower us to look like Christ. And in the end, we will rest with you. We thank you, Father, for the rest you promise us in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.